guys, welcome to another edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. We're really, really happy to have a very special guest today who suffered a debilitating immune health collapse back in 2012. Now, she credits cannabis for helping to reduce her reliance on harmful pharmaceuticals and for supporting her ability to regain optimal health against all odds. She's a bachelor's, she has a bachelor's degree in nursing from Oregon Health and Science University. She's a registered nurse with a background in acute care, ortho and neuro, and cardiovascular catheter laboratory recovery. It was Jana Champagne. Jana, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm honored to be here. Oh, no, no, no. Look, I, you know, I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't address the elephant in the room to begin with, and that is, as especially when I have a chance to talk to a nurse, but what are your views and takeaways of the recent week when it comes to this COVID-19 pandemic? Right. I'm trying to look at the positive. I'm, I'm an optimist by nature. So I tend to look at the good that's coming from this. You know, we're learning that in our society that we can do things differently and have less impact on our environment. Um, we have a lot of medical professionals that are becoming very disenchanted with our, our healthcare system. And I think this opens an opportunity for those of us in the cannabis industry to start recruiting some of these medical professionals, not only offering cannabis as, as an answer for some of the issues they're facing, like anxiety and trauma and potential PTSD, which we know cannabis can, can help with, but also possible answers for their patients, which you know they, they're constantly looking for ways to better the life of their patients. And pharmaceuticals often fall short there. So I see this as a huge opportunity. I see it as a huge opportunity also for cannabis, but unfortunately, there isn't a lot of conversation being held on a national basis when it comes to cannabis and this virus, though every now and then, you know, a comedian will throw out a line or two, but we don't need the comedians to be doing the education. We need people like yourself and other medical professionals that are really stepping up to the plate to help us educate. But let's talk about, you're, you're in Oregon, right? I am, correct. So just, um, you know, like I'm, I'm con- coming into today from Miami and, you know, we just started opening up some of the things here in Miami on Wednesday, uh, two days ago. And there, as they open, I've been a little disenchanted by the fact that number one, people don't seem to be listening to the advice of keeping masks on their face. And two, you know, I've seen people literally just doing things that just doesn't seem right to me. Like, you know, going up and greeting people too close on the street without masks. I've even seen people walk up and still shaking a hand. I mean, come on, now, how much more do we have to beat people over the head to get them to understand that life is not, though we want to go back to what we perceive as normal, we don't have to go back to doing things that we thought were normal. Yes, yes, and that's a good point. And I think that's something we can drive home across the board. You know, people are learning they can do their work from home. We don't have to have gridlock on the freeways. We don't need to be polluting our environment. So I think there's going to be a lot of positive takeaways from this. Um, in Oregon, we just reopened last week, and I'm so excited because the gyms are finally open again. <laughs> That's my big excitement of the day. I can't, um, wait. I can't wait for ours to open up. They're not open here in Miami yet. Oh, no really? even, oh. I live in a, in, a, in a condo complex, and the gym in the condo is not even open. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm going to have to start. I got, you know, I've, I've slacked up in the last couple of weeks just out of boredom, and now I've got to get my, my butt back in the air. Yeah, I think Peloton sales are through the roof with COVID. I think they really benefited from this greatly. So. Sure, sure, sure. So let's, let's, let's go back and talk about your journey with cannabis and, 
and how it started for you. Let's let's go back go back to the beginning. Take me back. Uh, when did it actually start in 2012? Were you a recreational or an adult use cannabis user before 2012? I was. I actually grew up in Sonoma County, California, which is just just south of Humboldt. So I knew cannabis as a youngster, as a recreational tool, and um, and never thought of it as medicine until I got sick in 2012. And at the time, I was I was doing a lot. I'm I used to kind of be an A plus plus personality. I was working full time in a critical care unit at the hospital, working full time on my master's degree in nursing and homeschooling my daughter with autism, ignoring all of my body's red flags that something wasn't right, and suffered a, a, a major health collapse in 2012. Um, and that it turned out to be immune related and it flipped into autoimmune lupus was one of my diagnoses. And thankfully, I found cannabis about a year and a half into my mainstream treatments. Very unhappy with my progress. I was still disabled, not able to work, bed bound at times. Um, and, and I turned to cannabis just for pain relief. I was I have a lot of joint issues and things that, that go with my condition. And um, so and I knew I didn't want to go down that opioid pathway. As a nurse, you see what happens to patients' long-term opioid use. It's not pretty. So I turned to cannabis just for pain relief. And cannabis, you know, in addition to managing my pain, it lifted my brain fog. Uh, I was able to think again, which is the opposite of the stigma. It actually reversed my autoimmune markers, which to this day are still negative. Um, And it's just made so many other huge impacts in my own personal health recovery. And today I am consistently productive and able to maintain a 50 hour a week schedule pretty easily. Plus I still am primary caregiver for my daughter with autism. So it's just made a huge impact in my life. Now in 2012, was cannabis a medicinal recognized agent in Oregon back then, or the law hadn't passed at that point, did it? Yes. Yeah. We passed back in the nineties. We had medical cannabis. Okay, so you ended up having to do what a lot you had to do what a lot of people are trying to do right now, and that's try to figure out how to navigate a space that doesn't have the most qualified people behind the counter selling product. So, how did you educate yourself to begin with? You know, when I started off, I didn't know anything. Um, my husband happened to know a grower, and he went and got some trim from him and made me some good old RSO. That's how I started out. But, you know, as we as we know better, we do better. And and nowadays, uh, eight years later, I'm a nurse and I've worked with thousands of patients and helped to guide them to optimal products and what research supports specifically for their conditions and also to find medical quality products, which, you know, as you stated, not all products are the same. And, and you know, the knowledge base of those outside, you know, the medical professionals that are focusing on this really don't have the capacity to do things like check pharmaceuticals for interactions or help to guide medical use um, for optimal medical outcomes of cannabis therapy. So that's really. So, so basically you just put your head into the books like you do uh, going to nursing school and studied as hard as you could, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I'm a total cannabis nerd. Research is what I do as a hobby in my spare time. So that helps. (laughs) That's kind of like me, but that's something that, you know, I think we can't seem to emphasize enough to the general public. I mean, I think, you know, some people, you know, when, when the conversation started becoming more, you know, uh, regular around the country in the last four or five years, a lot of people just jumped in, ran down to the dispensary, grabbed a bag and thought, okay, I got, because I got some OG this or something other, and this must be it. But that's not the end to all. And so many people just let that be their end to all. 
Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you want to know how to become a social media influencer, how to grow an online business, how to make money from your laptop and build a profitable online company? Well, I'm going to show you how in my podcast, Living the Red Life. I built a million dollar company at the age of 25, a $10 million company at the age of 30, and now I'm the A-list celebrity marketer that speaks around the world on how to transform businesses and make them profitable using Facebook ads, marketing, social media. My name is Rudy Moore, and I'm super pumped to bring you my podcast, Living the Red Life. I know this is going to become your new favorite podcast, and I'm going to show you how to grow a profitable online company step-by-step every single week. Yeah, and, and I really, I always encourage patients that some experimentation may be necessary, even with knowledgeable guidance about which compound, because there's, you know, over 140 cannabinoids, over 200 terpenes, there's endless combinations possible to target different specific patients' issues. And that has led me into some work where now I'm actually helping medical quality cannabis companies formulate targeted formulations. So, you know, we have a formulation for pain in the day, pain at night, anxiety, depression, sleep, you know, cause we really want, want patients to be able to find a formula that's meeting their needs. That also though, and I know you're, you're a very big proponent of individualized care, but that also brings that into question because one formulation will work well for one person. Another formulation will work well for another person. And you know, you're right. I mean, I think recently I was in a conference and there was a Canadian research group that said that they've now, out of Israel, they're saying that they've identified almost 160 plus cannabinoids now. And then there's, yeah, you know, there's flavonoids, there's terpenes, there's all the things that go into this plant that for years, you know, a lot of people don't even understand that here in the United States of America, we were part of the reason why, you know, in the latter part of the 60s and early part of the 70s, you know, the United States of America in Humboldt County was on a mission to, to breed CBD out of the plant and attempted to, to make, you know, lots of clones and sell them all over the place that had high THC content, but were destroying the content of some of the other cannabinoids that are just as important to the overall interaction with your endocannabinoid system. The, the criteria I teach my patients for medical quality cannabis is flower-derived and this is specific to CBD. We don't want industrial hemp derived. We want it lab tested, you know, potency and purity, organically grown and whole plant or whole spectrum. We want the 500 plus compounds we find in that cannabis flower concentrated as nature intended. And research supports that works just as well or better than an isolate or a fractionalized, uh, you know, collaboration of products. Um, at 20 to 25% of the dose, which represents huge cost savings for patients. And it also has a more predictable response. So as you're increasing the dose, the effect increases, where with CO2s or isolates, there tends to be a bell curve response where you reach a peak, falls off and stops working. And so when you think about patients that are taking extremely high dosing for like autoimmune or cancer, they could literally be spending thousands of dollars on product every month and getting little to no benefit. So I and I don't benefit from the sales of any product, so I'm very objective in my view. I'm, as a patient who happens to be a nurse, I'm a huge patient advocate, and that's my focus. So, yeah, one of the things I've found, and I've been in the industry, you know, again, I, I, I was literally an advocate in this industry since way back in 2000, you know, long before this became Vogue. And, you know, one of the things that, that I found 
back then. I, I am not as much a flower consumer as I am a keef consumer. So I go after the which has really the highest percentage of almost all the cannabinoids and all of the phytonutrients in that. In that. I've been a really, really big keef user now for almost 20 years. And then I started to notice that if you were to take a, a full spectrum extraction to liquefy and then go back and add additional, okay, you got full spectrum, but now let's go ahead and add, if you want to add for you, you really want to have a really good sleep response. If you found a really good full spectrum, broad spectrum oil that you can then add and increase the CBN level to, and raise that up and start raising individual terpenes up so that you have the you know the 100%, but now make it an 120 proof, 130 proof with CBD or CBN, and then adding some CBD on top of that. I mean, that's really where we're going to end up getting some fine tuning down the road. But I, I don't believe that as many of the providers are thinking that way right now. We're still in this, this mode of let's see how high we can get you with THC, not knowing that. You know, at some point in time, it doesn't matter how, what the level THC is, you are only going to get, but so high. Yes, exactly. And, and it is catching on. I'm working with, a, with three different suppliers right now. We're formulating, we're doing exactly what you just said. We're taking that whole plant base, looking at the cannabinoid and the terpene profile and saying, where can we amend this to make it a better target for a specific issue? So we're taking that whole plant base and adding CBN for sleep and adding you know, CBD for anxiety and adding THC for, you know, immune suppression for those in autoimmune. Um, and, and it's really catching on. I'm working with um, a physician in North Carolina. It's Dr. Dr. James Taylor of Integrated Hemp Solutions. And when I started with him a year ago, he had two formulations. He had a CO2 and an isolate CBD, hemp, of course, because he's in North Carolina. Now he has 20 different formulations and 18 of the 20 are medical quality. And they have all different combinations of cannabinoids and terpenes. And we're researching it to see what the patients tell us about their response to these different formulations that we're trying to target. I think we will end up having to go the path of a in the sense of doing clinical trials to make sure that, again, we get the response that we're looking for in a broader audience. But we have to know, and we will know that the response is going to be different in that broad audience. Talk a little bit about your integrated holistic care system. So integrated holistic care is an organ nonprofit that I launched in 2016 to help educate patients um, and help them to optimize their medical cannabis therapy outcomes. And of course, here in Oregon, you know, we have both recreational or adult use uh, cannabis, and we also have medical use. So we have both, um, you know, the patients that call me and pay for an hour consultation are looking for somebody to look at their individual considerations of cannabis therapy, look at their goals for cannabis therapy, and help match them up with, with the right products and educate. Um, and also, you know, screening pharmaceuticals is a big part of what I do as well, just to make sure that there's, you know, we don't have interactions or combined effects, they know what to expect. And, you know, the result is that I, many of my thousands of patients have, have reduced their reliance on pharmaceuticals. They've reduced the side effects of pharmaceuticals, which improves quality of life, improves their function. And overall, they're, they're just doing a lot better. And so, you know, I have a lot of, I reach out to a lot of um, medical professionals through Cannabis Nurses Network. I have accredited programs to educate nurses about cannabis, but I have a lot of physicians that call me and say, what are you doing? I want to hear more about this. 
my patients' outcomes are just, you know, mind blowing. I don't understand. And so I'm really pushing right now for outreach to other medical professionals to make sure that we're, you know, there's only only very few of us doing this work. And so we need more of us doing it. Are you are you seeing a lot of pushback though from the, you know, the traditional pharmaceutical industry of doctors are, are you getting pushback or, or are you getting getting cautious you know uh, uh, reticence or are you getting cautious intrigue where people are interested what what what, what are you to say it just depends on on where they're at and where we find them and and what i find is that when medical professionals start seeing the patient outcomes that's often the paradigm shifter, that's often what opens the door a little crack. And then they start researching it and they realize cannabis meets zero of the three criteria for schedule one. They realize there's tens of thousands of reputable research studies supporting cannabis for dozens of indications or conditions. Um, you know, it's, it's not, it's not as they've been taught and, you know, then they begin to question like, why aren't we learning endocannabinoid system science in medical school? Well, are, you, are you not excited about the fact that now that is becoming, I think, a part, at least, you know, I, I was speaking to a couple of doctors uh, a few weeks ago who were saying that, you know, they did get the two hour seminar on the endocannabinoid system. Finally, are you, are you excited about the fact that at least they're starting to bring this up and it should have been bringing this up for the last 30 years? Oh, really? I know. I know. It's ridiculous. But, you know, it explains why there is skepticism in our medical community, because they don't learn this in school. And they're taught, if you don't learn it in school, stay in your box or you're going to be sued for malpractice. So, I mean, it's understandable that they that they question the validity of what's being said. I mean, it does sound kind of outrageous. The other thing is you can't compare cannabis with our current mainstream protocols, you know, with the pharmaceuticals, because pharmaceuticals are one or two active ingredients where the cannabis plant is over 500. So once you start explaining how it works differently, the system that it activates promotes balance and the underlying cause of every illness is imbalances. So from a general view, that really explains how it's good for so many things. It's not snake oil. There's, there's real science. This is not, these aren't articles out of High Times Magazine. This is NIH research and PubMed research you know, reputable studies. And so once they see that, if they, you know, helps them walk through that fear, because we've all taken notes as medical professionals to do what's best for our patients. And so once you realize its safety profile is unsurpassed, it, the indications it's good for are many, and uh, it really should be the first resort for most patients, in my opinion. I mean, it's really kind of crazy, the fact that you still have, I, I speak, you know, often, um, of course, now during this time, slow down a little bit but i notice it, it's it's insane that there's so many medical professionals that don't even understand that the united states government has a patent on cbd and its patent is based on research that it's funded to identify what the endocannabinoid system is over almost 20 years ago it's amazing to me that we just can't seem to get this in our brain that you know wait a minute maybe i've been misled a little bit here Yes, yes. And I always say the history of cannabis is a really powerful tool to help open the paradigms of medical professionals. Because when you explain that, you know, back in the 1980s, we went to the DEA, we had a federal judge agree with us that cannabis met zero of the three criteria for Schedule One, recommended descheduling. What did they do? They fired him, brought in somebody else, overturned it. And a couple of years later, our own federal government applied for that patent for cannabis as medicine. Well, one of the three criteria for Schedule One placement is no medical use. So it, 
it's it's like why why is why are we still fighting this? Why is it still scheduled one 30 plus years later? It's and you know what the answer is? Unfortunately, it's politics and money. It's not in the best interest of patients. And you know what? Well, it really had I I think in the, as we you know 20 years from now, we will actually look back and realize how extremely racist this was, and it was put in place to continue to enslave a group of people because it was something that was used to make sure that you can incarcerate a group of people thinking that as long as you flooded that neighborhood with that product, then they would have that product in their pocket. So therefore, when I stop, I'm not going to arrest them. And therefore, we can now start making more money in the incarceration business business rather than the incarceration for justice. So, I mean, but I think it's going to take another 20 years for people to actually finally let that sink in. But when I get back to you know, our discussion, let, let's let's take a few minutes because I think one of the things that I know, let's be blunt, uh, uh, viewers really enjoy is the opportunities that I give them to get some education. And I was really extremely impressed by, you know, reading some of your background and, and reading into some of the research you've done. And we're going to talk about some of your specialized and individualized care uh, paradigms that you use. Let's take a few minutes to go ahead. You explain, and I try my best. I always have been explaining for the last five years, you know, the idea of the fact that the endocannabinoid system is real. It is whether or not we want to call it this or not. It's kind of like a secondary sympathetic nervous system that we've had in our body. All mammals have in their body going back to the time that we were little wolves on the savannah. And that, in, that, that endocannabinoid system is a system that's attached to our nervous system one of the only systems in our body that actually sends chemicals retrograde, retro, sends them backwards to respond and let the brain know things are done. When you kick, when you, when you walk by and you slam your toe into a table and, you, and your toe is getting ready to just go, ah, and you're going to get that, that huge blast of inflammation and all those white blood cells are running down there to that toe, there's this little signal in our body, it's called anandamide, that actually runs in the reverse all the way back up to the brain to tell the brain, okay, that's enough white blood cells, slow down a little bit, or you're going to destroy all the good material. Nobody knows that that's controlled by and actually modulated by our endocannabinoid. That's an endocannabinoid, but that's modulated by these little nerve receptors that let the brain know, okay, enough's enough. And so it's kind of like the Goldilocks zone, you know, when it's not too hot, it's not too cold, it's just right. That's what keeps us just right. Make sure that our body, you stated itself, kind of works in a homeostatic way, which means in balance. But go ahead and give us your explanation, because I mean, it really, really, really did, it, it registered well with me when I was just reading the materials. Yes, yes. And I'm glad you brought up the retrograde signaling. You know, another big point about that is that the endocannabinoid system is the only system known to act that way, retrograde signaling of our neurological system. And so it's really there to modulate our immune system and that immune, that inflammatory response so that it doesn't go haywire and become a big problem. And, um, and so the endocannabinoid system, I call it our motherboard. I call it the system that keeps every other system in our body in balance. And, uh, you know, another thing that surprises a lot of people is that we make endocannabinoids in our bodies. And these endocannabinoids act exactly like the cannabinoids from the plant. And anandamide, which you mentioned, is synonymous with THC from the plant. 
2-AG in our body is synonymous with CBD from the plant. And so when we can't make enough of these. Sorry, I was just going to throw it in. We may find out as we do the real research that we should have been doing, that we may find out that THCV, THCA, and other cannabinoids also actually hit and respond to CB1 and CB2 connectors. So it's like right now, science is just really at what, you know, I mean, this is, this is, we're, we're at the Wright brothers pushing the wooden airplane down a hill right now when it comes to the research in this field. Right, right. And that's a good point. I always tell people if somebody proclaims to know everything, like back away slowly and maintain eye contact because they're going to be obsolete very quickly. You need to keep open mind to new information. And that's one of the reasons, you know, this is such a great match for me. I have hungry brain syndrome. I'm constantly liking to learn. And so this is, you know, this is a very exciting industry for me. Um, so the, you know, the endocannabinoid system, it, it's, it's actually said that, that the endocannabinoid system is vital for life, that if we don't have an endocannabinoid system, life is not possible. And the other thing I really like to drive home is the importance of endocannabinoids and cannabinoids as vital nutrients. Um, the most prolific source of endocannabinoids that we make is in breast milk, which we know is like the milk of life, right? And so just knowing- Not cow's milk, breast milk. Let's make sure people- Breast milk just from that. humans. We make milk. endocannabinoids, we give it to our babies in our milk. So that's how important it is. That's how vital it is as a nutrient. And when, you're, when your body can't make enough of those endocannabinoids, um, that has been coined as a condition itself called endocannabinoid deficiency. And that is said to be underlying in every person that has chronic illness, according to Dr. Ethan Russo. So, I mean, when you start putting these pieces together. Yeah, you take a look, you take a look at, I'm not mean to cut you off, but I'm throwing this out there for our viewers again. You take a look at the fact that it's been now a hundred years that we have outlawed the consumption of cannabinoids. If we go back before that hundred years, people ate a hemp-based porridge in the morning for breakfast. As a matter of fact, back as far back as, you know, 1590s, as a matter of fact, coming across on the ships going across the ocean, they ate a porridge of hemp because we knew that hemp was one of the highest protein-laden seeds on the planet. They didn't recognize all of its effect on the endocannabinoid system, but it was what was keeping us in balance back in a time when, you know, we didn't have air conditioning, we didn't have heaters, we were sleeping on the ground, we were getting, you know, uh, 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 inundated with all kinds of bacteria and things like that. That's what helped to keep our immune system as balanced and as strong as it was to help us survive. It wasn't until you hit the, you know, early 1900s really late 1800s and early 1900s when we start to see some of the maladies and diseases that we've seen now that are so rife within our society. Yes, yes. And unfortunately, you know, cannabis was made uh, not illegal, but it was taxed so high that nobody could afford it in 1937. And like you talked about the, the racism behind that, you know, they, they changed the name from cannabis, which all the doctors knew it as, to marijuana to increase the state of Mexican-Americans. And the doctors had no idea they were outlawing cannabis. They thought it was some other plant. Um, but unfortunately, you know, cannabis is a, and hemp is, is a, a competitor for so many big industries, from paper to textiles and cotton to, um, you know, I mean, hemp steel, not to mention medicine and food. And so the basis behind that was really financial. It had nothing to do with the benefit of the people. And when that happened is when we had this explosion of chronic illness in our population we'd never seen before. And it continues on until today. And especially where the fact that the longer we get away from using, you know, cannabinoids and actually balancing our system, 
we see that what we call autoimmune diseases may truly just be, as you said, endocannabinoid deficiency disease that has really thrown the rest of our system out of balance. And I've been a person who was, you know, uh, was diagnosed with MS now almost 30 years ago. And still, well, I should have been diagnosed almost 40 years ago. I was officially diagnosed in 2000. So this is 2020, so 20 years later. But I have been a daily cannabis user every day since that, right before the diagnosis and after. And I think that's been part of the reason for my success with this illness. I've done really, really well, but it's because I've gone, and there were some times and periods of time when I was really feeling some of the pains of my disease in an extreme way that my usage of cannabis was really, really extremely high. But then as I've you know, as my disease has gone on its way, my uses of the cannabis has gone on a wave, but I continue to use every day. I put a, a CB, I put at least CBD in my product, in my body every single day of the week. Yes. Yes, I do too. I do too. I have multiple forms, uh, CBD, CBG, THCA in the morning, THC, CBN, THCA at night. And I, I just so admire that you've been so open about your story. I know, you know, just even having been in this industry five years, it's difficult sometimes to talk about. So the fact that you've been such a pioneer and been so open about your story, I think, you know, how many doors has that opened? I, I, I just really admire your willingness to put yourself out there and, and tell your story. Fantastic, by the way. So you're doing something right. No, but it's same, and same for you. I mean, you know, if we're not willing to share what we learn for ourselves with others, what value are we on this planet? And, you know, unfortunately... That's what we're seeing going on right now. At least right now through this COVID thing, there are more scientists willing to share as much data as they can because they recognize its value to the masses. So yeah, let's, let's talk a little bit about you know, your whole individualized patient plan. People reach out to you for individualized plans. Talk a little bit about how that came about. Um, well, I, I began teaching, well, actually my start in this industry back in 2014 was as a grower. Um, I was still fairly disabled, you know, growing actually got me back into physical shape. I, I was so sick. I was, I'm 5'8", and I was down to 113 pounds. I was size zero, um, just wasting away, basically. And, uh, and once I started feeling better with the cannabis, I started growing my own medicine because it was more affordable, and I still wasn't working. And then I began growing for other patients and realizing that different strains were good for different indications and different patient goals. Um, and that led into making products, making concentrates and, and tinctures and edibles and topicals and whatever the patient wanted. Um, and so that really led to me beginning to educate patients about cannabis and its use and how to optimize it and how to target it for their conditions. And so then I began consulting and, uh, and patients would call me and I would do, I do a, a pretty intensive assessment of their needs through an intake form. And then I spend an hour with them on the phone. And just um, assess their situation, assess their goals, educate them, answer any questions they might have, make sure they understand uh, the goals and, and what's reasonable to expect from the cannabis therapy. And so that has grown now. I actually have, have hired and trained three more nurses, and we work with patients all over the world. So that really took off. Um, just, just so your audience is aware, I'm not currently taking new patients um, the state of Oregon is actually trying to restrict nurses' ability to do this. So I'm, I'm involved in that fight right now through Oregon Cannabis Clinicians Group. And Dr. Rachel Knox is heading that up. She's just a powerhouse. Well, how did this start? Why, why did all of a sudden the state of Oregon start pushing back? 
Oh my gosh. I don't know. I, I, to be honest, I kind of suspect that one of the board members is, is receiving some pharmaceutical in, in, you know, some money or, or some incentives um, to, to do this because cannabis has been legal here medically for more than 20 years. It's always been a great area covered under patient education under my nursing licensure, which is still current and valid. Um, and then last November, they decided to reject the NCSBN guidelines, which is the NAS- National State Board of Nursing guidelines for nurses in the cannabis industry, which I have followed to the letter for years. Um, and they decided to reject them because there's a law in Oregon that specifies that patients must be educated by physicians. And so we're working to change and expand that law language. Um, so that's what's happening. But um, in the interim, unfortunately, patients are at heightened risk of, of not being successful with their cannabis therapy because they walk into a dispensary and choose from thousands of products and the education of the bed tender behind the counter, you know, may or may not be be, you know, where it should be. I mean, they certainly can't do things like, like test your, look at your pharmaceutical list and tell you what to space. And the physicians here are, for the most part, are not educating. The patient goes to their doctor appointment for a cancer and they walk away with a signature, which is not a prescription. It doesn't tell them what to buy. It doesn't tell them how often to take it, you know, what route, none of that. So it's, we were really filling an important gap here. And now we've had our hands tied, unfortunately. And you're not allowed to then interact with, you can still interact with the patients that you've had to date, correct? Or no? Yes, I can. Yeah. I do. I still, I still do follow up with, you know, and it's mostly, I don't charge for it anymore because I don't want my le- nursing license to be impacted, but you know, that's okay. I'm paying it forward. <laughs> sure. You, well, you know, I guess freedom of speech gives you the right to have a discussion with anybody about anything you want to talk about. Yes. Yes. It's very specific about guiding them towards products to help them with specific conditions is where my hands are tied. And I am, I am allowed to teach about hemp and CBD. So thankfully I've got a couple of contracts with CBD companies that have kept me afloat. So. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, so you're allowed to talk about hemp, but you can't talk yes. about cannabis. Exactly. Which, which is really ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and in, in Oregon, nurses can administer THC cannabis in certain situations, but we can't talk to the patient about it. I mean, that makes absolutely zero sense. Talk a little bit about now. You've, you've got what's called genetically guided cannabis therapy. Let's explain what that is. So another area that I specialize is nutrigenomics. And uh, this came about because, of course, I have a daughter with autism and there's some genetic predisposition there. Um, so I began... Um, actually researching that before I got sick in 2008 was my first epigenetic conference. And uh, in learning about the power of, of manipulating gene expression, because our, you think of genetics as this static thing that doesn't change, but actually it has like an on and off switch on the gene. And if, and, and we know that with environmental impact, meaning your lifestyle, your diet, your stress management, you can actually turn on and off genes that, that you could like turn off a gene for heart disease. And and even if you have that genetic predisposition, it's in your family, it may help you prevent ever getting heart disease. And so it's just as fascinating. There's tons of research out of university of Berkeley on this subject. And, you know, I think the first article that caught my eye was one called DNA is not destiny. And it's, it's this research study about a mother rat. And they found that just by changing her diet, they could change the color of her offspring. So it's huge. It's huge. And so, so I specialize in nutrigenomics was really integral in my own recovery. It's been integral in, in my daughter's improvement. 
of autism. And, and so now we've learned the genetics of the endocannabinoid system and how they cross over with the immune system and the neurotransmitters and the gut um, and all these different huge areas in the body and how we can optimize some of the underlying contributors to the imbalances. And so I use, I know it's complicated, but I use this analogy, overflowing sink for illness. You've got imbalances, they built up, they're everywhere. It's a big mess. Starting cannabis can be likened to taking the plug out of the drain. You're going to start getting your body to promote balance, targeting the, the genetic contributors to those imbalances through nutrigenomics, shutting, you know, turning off those light switches. It's like slowing down or shutting off the faucet. The combination of the two is how I'm healthy today. Look at that and say, okay, so this form of cannabis might not be good for you. This one might be better. So we can, we're starting to use it in that capacity as well. Well, okay. Well, you know, you've had success with your own daughter. You just mentioned her. And the fact that she has been on the spectrum and she's an autistic child who started to act out differently when she hit the puberty mark. Is that correct? And a lot of, a lot of families with autistic children go through this. Why don't you take us on your journey? Just talk about what, what you did and, and how you navigated that, that space. Well, it was, it was a couple of years into my illness journey and I had found cannabis and found it to be very effective and very safe. Um, had never thought of it for my daughter. She was diagnosed with autism at age two and a half. Uh, she was nonverbal until age 10. She was considered severe. She was labeled mentally retarded at age seven, unable to learn. Um, and as I was coming out of my haze of illness, she entered a puberty crisis where she went from being this sweet, loving, cuddly little girl, very eager to please, to the hormone monster. Um, and she was actually diagnosed PMDD thereafter, which is kind of like homicidal PMS. Um, and she was beating up all of her caregivers, anybody of authority in her life. She destroyed my home, holes in every wall, holes through every door. She was self-injurious on top of it, which, which almost led to out-of-home placement because um, because of the safety issues that that brought in and you know, a lot of trauma, of course, in the midst of all of this. And so we started her on THCA, you know, we got her a cannabis card, everything legitimate doctor oversight. Um, and it, it resolved her severe behaviors that were risking out of home placement. It spared her that it spared all of us that. So this has added to my passion and I'm kind of known as the autism cannabis nurse for that reason. Um, her, her story actually published on the cover of Everything Medical Marijuana magazine in 2017, which sold in Barnes & Noble across the country. And that was kind of my coming out of the cannabis closet as a holist. I was calling myself a holistic nurse before that. And after that, I'm like, okay, I'm a cannabis nurse now. <laughs> it's been a journey. It's been, you know, it, and I feel so blessed now to be able to utilize this knowledge that we learned through those traumatic experiences to help other patients, because that really gives it all purpose, which we know is key for post-traumatic growth. So I feel it's so- not, It's anecdotal, but at the same time, I want to talk a little bit about your daughter's journey. Now, how did you introduce her to cannabis? Was it edibly? Did you smoke? Because a lot of people, when they, they hear cannabis and kids, they think that, you know, mom and pop sit down on the couch and pass a joint over. That's not what's going on. Right. Not at all. And as I explained in my article, which you can find on my website, Integrated Holistic Care, under the News tab, yeah, that again, slow. Say it again real slow so people get it. Integratedholisticcare.com under the news tab is my daughter's story. And uh, what I explained is that, you know, of course, with my daughter, we started with a non-intoxicating THCA and acid form um, because I was concerned about the neurodevelopmental issues that research supports are possible with THC use in childhood or adolescence. 
And I talk to every patient, you know, that's calling for a minor about this. Um, and we're always weighing the risk versus the benefit. Well, in my daughter's case, she did end up progressing to THC and CBD and CBN and CBG and a bunch of other forms. And we've got her protocol pretty well dialed in at this point. Um, and I just have to say, How old is she now? How old is she now? Just turned 18 last month. I can't believe it. So, yeah, I'll be an empty <laughs> nester soon. <laughs> I actually have plans to convert my home here once this whole COVID thing clears because that's held everything up. But um, this will be an autism cannabis care home at some point in the future once, once we're able to do that. Bring in a couple of roommates and that'll be an integration along with optimizing other areas of their quality of life and function like I've done for my daughter. Very exciting. Um, but autism is endocannabinoid deficiency at its root. And if you look historically, we took cannabis off the market in 37. The first case of autism showed up early in the 1940s. We know that, that endocannabinoid uh, genetic mutations predispose autism. We know that autism is correlated with anandamide deficiency. I mean, there's so much research supporting this. And so under, I almost think that if we hadn't stopped using cannabis so prolifically in our society, autism might not even exist today. That's how strongly I feel about it. Wow. Now, again, but you're, the, that journey that you took your daughter on you used various methods to titrate her initially, right? You were using edibles, using other, uh, talk a little bit about that. Uh, I tend to really like the tinctures. They're very, um, they're, they're just so flexible. You can use them sublingually. You can drop them in a capsule, swallow them. You can put them in food, put them in drinks. Um, and you can also titrate really slowly, you know, with the concentrates or the edibles. You don't, uh, edibles are tricky because you're putting, the concentrate into the recipe. And if you don't mix it correctly, you get an area of the brownies that are really strong, an area that are really weak. So I don't tend to go with edibles as much um, for people, but it's really just based on what the patient wants. And, and I like the, the tinctures because you can start off slow, count the number of drops, know exactly how much you're taking, increase a little more sublingually if you want more effect, figure out your sweet spot. And, you know, I always tell patients, the goal is to find where you're taking the cannabis two or three times a day. You have good baseline symptom management. It is flexible. If you have a day that's harder, take more. It's not going to hurt anything. Just make sure you're spacing around those pharmaceuticals correctly. Great. And you, and now you, do you still work with parents of children who are on a spectrum? Um, I do. In fact, I have a, there's a, an autism recovery summit that I'm part of that's launching next weekend on the 29th. Um, and that's with uh, Luminara Sardana. So you could look that up. I also um, have several other autism outlets going on right now where I'm just openly trying to educate um, parents about this option. So they understand because the puberty crisis is common to 50% of kids with autism. And it's such a huge answer for that. But even earlier on, we find that if we can get the cannabis into these kids when they're younger, it seems to bring even better benefits as they get old and they age. And now your daughter will be on a regimen for as long as you can see, correct? The oh, lifelong. Yes. She has endocannabinoid deficiency. She needs cannabinoids from the plant as a vital nutrient to supplement what she's deficient in. I can't think of it. Is there, what, what's coming up for you in the near future? Oh gosh, it's, it's kind of unknown. Um, you know, I'm doing a lot of medical professional education. I, there's, I have an opportunity right now to be 
to come on to faculty of a college that's putting together some programs. Um, I'm doing a lot of consulting and research with physicians and different groups. I have two research studies on COVID going on right now specific to cannabis um, and its capacity to help reduce not only as a preventative, but potentially reduce the cytokine storm in those who have active COVID. So I'm, yeah, I just, I'm taking what comes basically. <laughs> I, I, I was, I, I've been hesitant to, to start the conversation about the fact that cannabis would probably be a good protocol for, especially those who have overcome COVID bad symptoms and are in their recovery phase you know, and it doesn't have to be again smoke. So a lot of people are thinking about it because this is a, you know, an inflammatory disease of the lungs. Of course, you wouldn't be asking people to go ahead and now vaporize things or put things down in the lungs. But then again, from a, you know, a analgesic standpoint, from edible standpoint, an anti-inflammatory standpoint, I can't see why it would not be of some value. Yeah, absolutely. And and there's a couple of I'm looking at the genetics of COVID too, and there's a couple of pathways that CBD inhibits that that trigger the cytokine storm in COVID and trigger the fibrosis of the lungs in COVID. And so if CBD can inhibit that, it's going to reduce the amount of damage in those that have been diagnosed with COVID, not to mention that it can be prevented it. I think that, we've known this since we've known this since around 1998 when, you know, back but then when I think, uh, you know, there was a study that was done by McCaffrey, it was either 98 or 2000 that talked about cannabis and cannabinoids and their protective mechanism inside the lungs rather than a damaging. So there, there may be research that, that's 20 years old that substantiates that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, lung cancer is not attributed with cannabis inhalation. You know, inhalation for me is not usually the preferred method for medicine, but it does have, you know, some really great uses. And like my daughter, we've taught her how to use a vape pen because if she's ramping up and she's showing signs that she's headed towards a big behavior. And, uh, and you know, the sublinguals take 10, 15 minutes to kick in for her right. where the vape pen is 10 seconds. And so right. stop those behaviors in her track and stop before she has a meltdown. And, and so it's a really great tool that way. And, you know, it's great for quick symptom management. We know it's, it's not harmful for most. So it's always a tool. Um, you know, but I always say if you're inhaling, always be taking it orally as well. That way you're getting it into the rest of your system. Yeah, it's going mucosally, correct, especially in November. But smoking is great for quick symptom management. Absolutely. Jenna, I tell you, I cannot thank you enough for having joined us today. I'd love to have you back in the future. Yes, anytime, please. And I know that all of you out there who tuned in to Let's Be Well Montel today are going to be absolutely thrilled with the conversation we just had with Jenna Champagne. Um, again, give out your website if somebody wants to go and get some more information. Yes. Um, so the best place to find me right now is actually my media kit website, which is janachampagne.com, J-A-N-N-A, champagne like the drink.com. And that kind of gives an overview of all of my roles in the industry. Um, if you're a patient and you're looking for help, you can reach out to me either there or on integratedholisticcare.com. And while I'm not practicing currently, I do have other nurses where I can refer patients to. So. Super. So make sure you go and write those that information down if you need some help or need to just, you know, pick a brain, go on up and do so. And I can't thank you enough for having joined us today on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Are 
Are you dealing with best life burnout, constantly striving for more, and quite frankly, over it? Maybe you just want more joy, peace, and laughter in your life now. Well, then let's go. Welcome to your new favorite podcast, Hot Happy Mess, hosted by me, your girl, Zuri Hall. We are celebrating our magic in the middle of life's messes. Don't miss new episodes every Wednesday. Listen to the Hot Happy Mess podcast on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Larry Mishkin, and I'd like to invite you to join Rob Hunt and me on our weekly podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show. Each week, we explore the latest cannabis and jam band news and reminisce with other deadheads and jam band lovers about the great musical acts that we've seen and heard. Check out a new episode every Monday. Casts.